This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So, of course, we're open to uh, questions from the crowd, but I'll, I'll be uh, the first to start up because I have uh, a compelling question that dates back to the Cove. And how does a movie become a movement? Is there some sort of special sauce that you have put into The Cove and now this fantastic film, Racing Extinction? Well, I mean, the, the Cove, we made in my backyard. I took a three-day crash course on how to make a film. I made that. So, like, the movement started in my backyard. This <laughs> idea of, you know, after... How many people have seen The Cove? Wow, we have a lot of fans here. That's great. Awesome. Another, the other ones I imagine are... That hasn't seen, you're just too scared to see it still, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's... Uh, the, the Cove... Uh, this film is a lot more Pulp Fiction, to, and that's a lot more. A lot, the Cove is a lot more Reservoir Dogs. It's a lot more violent, I think. Um, but it really started with uh, participant media. I mean, they came. You know, we had distribution and um, the educational campaign on the same day. We played it. The, we we won Sundance, and we didn't have distribution. We played it at Lynn and Norman Lear's house. There's one of the most, the famous and you know most successful uh, producers of my generation. And in that audience, uh, after Sundance, we had, had distribution. We played it at their home up in Brentwood, and Jeff Skoll was there, and Michael Burns was, from Lionsgate was there, and Jeff said, I'll do the educational campaign if you distribute the film, and that's how, we had, that's how that movement started. But it was really started with Rickle Berry. You know, if you know the film, sure, Rickle sure. Berry was the, 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 um, you know, the, the trainer who captured and trained the five female dolphins that collectively played the part of Flipper. And it really started with him. And then I got infected. I think then Heather, that's how I met Heather. She was, uh, she was sort of single-handedly keeping the Cove alive in all the L.A. area. I heard about this amazing you know, woman that was going, you know, was, she was, you're going to school. Here, you tell the story. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Heather. Um, yeah, so when the Cove came out, I was, I had been doing, I'm now a veterinarian, um, at the time I was not, but I had been doing um, marine mammal rescue and rehab, rescuing marine mammals that are sick and injured off the coast of California here, rehabilitating them, releasing them. So these animals, they, they were my passion. Um, and then I saw the cove, and I think, like many of you can relate, obviously the, the message itself um, was devastating to learn that they were being slaughtered brutally by the tens of thousands in a small cove on the other side of the planet, so that was obviously devastating, but it wasn't just it wasn't just that that was devastating. For me, it was really um, I was disappointed in myself because I, I considered myself a member of the marine mammal scientific community, and I knew nothing about this. It, it was news to me. Um, so that was that was really my awakening. For, I mean, for me, it was from that point on. I swore to myself that I would never again be complacent in or ignorant to animal suffering. And that's what has led me to here today. But, you know, now we now we have a, a million that we started out with nothing, you know, with with no kind of following at all, no organization. And now we have nearly a million people on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and that million people, which are comprised of people just like you, that we can get together. Maybe ten or twenty thousand of us together, we can start to influence. So like like. You know, rock acts, like I think 10 out of 12 rock acts that were playing down at SeaWorld, we got them to pull out. Uh, we we uh, banded with the, the educational campaign for Blackfish, 
And we sent, our organization sent out a copy of Blackfish and the Cove to every shareholder on the 10 major investment firms of SeaWorld. And that coupled with uh, a law that was going on here at the time where uh, one of the congressmen was trying to ban orcas in captivity, um, at, the, at the very next quarterly report, SeaWorld stock, stock dropped, I think it was three quarters of a billion dollars in a single day. Wow. So, you know, how our movement started is by every individual to collectively getting together and to raise your voice for, you know, for whatever cause you want. Um, you, you have the capacity to evoke such emotion in, in the films, and uh, it's clearly the emotion is leading people to action. And I was trying to analyze it today, after, tonight, after watching it for the second time, and I noticed a, a distinct juxtaposition of beauty and tragedy. Is that a, is that a conscious editorial decision uh, that you're, for instance, in the Manta sequence where we learn about the Mantas having their gills removed and they're laying flat in the marketplace, and then immediately following we're with uh, Sean Hendricks underwater as these beautiful animals swim overhead. So, it, Yeah, we manip- manipulated you, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, no, seriously, with, you know, you have to... Uh, you, ha- you can't just give people information. People don't change behavior unless you change their hearts first. So that's, that's what we've... We learned, you know, that's the scientific studies, you know. Uh, so, you know, why do you have to get people to care? You have to get people to care about, you know, Rick O'Berry before you get people to care about dolphins. Then once you start to, you know, care about dolphins, it's like you're on board, you know. But you have to sort of get people through a progression. Like if we just started out talking about plankton, you know, it wouldn't make any sense to people. But you start to realize like we're all connected. So the story's uh, crafted so that you you are sort of, you know. You care about blue whales because they're big and exotic and they've got this amazing song, but you can't hear it. It's mysterious. But then you start to realize that, you know, the smallest thing in the world, you can't see it with your eyes, but you can see it from space because there's so many of them. But it's probably more important to your life than any other large mammal. Right, right. You know, so we we crafted the film so that you start to emotionally start to care about these other creatures, the ones that even that you can't see. So well done. Yeah, a good a good story has peaks and valleys, sure. and you know if you're trying to tell a story of success, it's going to feel that much higher when it comes after something that may be devastating. So we really tried to ride those those peaks and valleys deliberately in this film. Right, right. Yeah, Gina, tell us a bit about uh, Ocean Oceanic Preservation Society. Uh, that was that's the the root of the cove and now racing extinction. Tell us a bit about the mission of. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we're actually a really small team. We're about five people. Um, start, started in Louis' backyard, um, <laughs> and uh, and our our mission as a nonprofit organization is really to um, inspire people to save the ocean. And the way that we do that is um, creating compelling films, compelling photography, bringing and, and doing it in a really compelling storytelling manner. And I think we do that in a really unique way through our covert missions, through really um, iconic visuals. Uh, and so far, you know, the Cove Racing Extinction have been our two, our two films so far. But, um, but like I said, it's a really actually quite a small team that, that pulls it off. Is there something on, in the future? Like, what are you planning next? What's the next plan for OPS? Ooh, a couple of them. Um, we're working with uh, another film director, um, well, executive producer now, James Cameron. I uh, made a couple movies. I think, I think they were more them. successful than mine. Um, you see, I think he sold more popcorn in the first 15 minutes of his films than I did overall. Um, I think we're doing a film on um, athletes, super athletes that are plant-based. That's all they, they eat is, is, you know, for, for protein is plants. So you have the world's fastest guy, world's strongest guy, world, nine t- chi- uh, world champion arm wrestler, all vegans. 
Um, and because the, there's this myth, the most dangerous myth in the world is that you need animal protein, you know, to, to get strong, to be a man. And when in fact, you know, you look at you know, world's strongest animals, they're all, you know, plant-based. Sure, sure. And, just, and you know, it's not only killing our, pe- you know, our bodies, our own bodies, but what, what they, we put into them. But it's obviously, from the, you learn from the, this film, killing the planet, too. So we think we can, you know, do an end around. It's, it's, most vegetarians and vegans are... Are, are females, and they get, about ten percent of them are, but the ten percent of the population is. But the it's the men who can you know foil that. They think, okay, what's what's you know what is this burger made out of? They just you know, but we think we make a compelling film by using these heroes, you know, like real men, you know, that aren't trying to dominate, you know, <laughs> you know, people with uh, with you know. You, th- you think about it, it's like. You know, to, to be a real man, you know, we think that you have to dominate somebody else. You have to, you know, football, you overpower him, boxing, you, you decimate him. But I think being a real man means you, you, you basically take care of the weak. You know, you, you defend them. And what could be a better defender of wildlife and nature and, and animals in general by adopting a plant-based diet? The average human being eats 10,000 animals in their lifetime. So everybody deciding to become more of a vegetarian or vegan becomes a superhero just by default. Wow, 10,000 animals. Yeah. Yeah. Tom, tell us a little bit more about the car. You know, I don't know that we got the full picture of exactly what that car was capable of, but tell us a bit about your job and the gadgets that were built into that Tesla. Well, the, the car itself is kind of a superhero. It's, uh, it's really designed to be... Uh, a voice for the film, and and with the paint on it, it's like a reverse camouflage. It's like, hey, look at me, you know. And it's that paint itself is actually kind of inspired by you know these animals, like a huge majority of animals that live in darkness under the sea that we can't see that communicate using light. And so that's the car is kind of like this this creature, if you will, that can communicate using light um, to get the message across to the film, both. You know, like what's happening with endangered species, but also, you know, m- more direct, like text images, you know, more conceptual, Im- you know, words and images that we can splice together and and can go anywhere we want and start getting the message out there. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of like the overall, you know, underneath the hood, it's like a whole bunch of crazy wires and extra batteries and, and a lot of things that can go wrong at any second. And, and then there's a race car driver that's speeding around with it, you know, taking turns really tight. I'm like, Leilani, slow down. Like, that's not my everywhere. And, yeah. So where, was, where did that final scene take place on the, the dual projection, both vertical and horizontal? Where was that? That was at the United Nations. At the United Nations. Yeah, just right before the People's uh, Climate March this last September. The day before. And is that going to, are you going to continue to take the car out and do projection Shows like that. We were just out this last week. We were at the, the Boulder International Film Festival, and we were, you, you know, we pulled up to a, our a mountain range, the flat, the flat irons. And I thought, there's no way we're going to be able to project on that. And sure enough, we can project on a wow. mountain. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. That's so we're going to actually we cut the end of the film. Uh, we're going around to film festivals around the country in the next six months, and we'll be we're shooting all the scenes. So we'll, we'll build a new ending. We're working on another ending. Just this morning, um, we're, we're looking to. 
still project onto the Empire State Building. That's why that scene is in there. We're leaving that in there because we want the, we want to end on you know doing the world's largest projections on probably the world's most iconic big building. Right. So we'll put endangered species on it. That's so the film's. I mean, I think it's pretty decent, but it's a work in progress for me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's decent. It's decent. <laughs> That final scene is so touching, just seeing the way people's response to the imagery. It's, uh, you know, to your point, imagery are weapons of mass construction, right? That was, that's your phrase. I'm not, that's not mine. It's true. Yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, uh, you know, when I, I started, my activism with magazines started in 1980. I did a, a story on on recycling for National Geographic. And there's only one mandatory recycling program in America at that point. And I thought, well, this is crazy. So I did this story for them called uh, Urban Ore. And uh, it was about, you know, I'm sure it was the first time a lot of middle America thought of, you know, garbage as being actually worth something. And so, you know, back then we had a circulation of 15 million, 44 million people saw the magazine. And it's like you start to create that tipping point. You don't need half the planet to change the planet. You need, right. you know, you, you also need to, that, that Malcolm Gladwell says about 16%. Right. So in that one swoop, you know, with geographic reaching at that point about 15% America, we had we we create we started to create that tipping point. Sure. And so I could see that film and images really are really powerful because people aren't you know they don't think about things and all of a sudden you know they're they, they're they're going out of the theater and said you know they're, they're changing their diet or they're thinking that you know they turn on their car and they're thinking about what they just these images they just saw. Once right. you once you see a film like this, you can't unsee it. It's true. Something about your films, though, are, are so much more impactful because a series like Planet Earth, where we see the spectacular beauty of nature, uh, creates a certain emotion and, and desire to protect it. But your films inspire these movements that are so much more. So it, perhaps it's, it is showing the tragedy up against the beauty. Well, the, the, you know, a lot of filmmakers, a lot, I should say a lot of the, the, the networks are really afraid to show the dark side. Because they, they, they see the numbers, that people don't want to see a movie that is only showing the, the downside of it. What we do is have this balance. We try to take you up higher than we, than we took you down. Sure, sure. And that's, like, that's the secret. I think people are hungry for something you know, that has, that's substantial. Yeah. You know, I, was a, uh, I worked at National Geographic, but I did mostly issue-based stuff. But my f- photographer friends, they were you know, constantly chasing a smaller and smaller oasis of the beauty. Right. And you know, giving us this illusion that you know the world's fine. We're you know right. we're ta- They're seeing the world go to hell, but right. the, the magazine doesn't want to show that side of it. But you know, so the, the, what everybody else gets is this you know this Garden of Eden. Yeah, yeah. But I think if you can show both, people are ready ready for it. This film was picked up by Discovery. It was the the biggest deal to come out of Sundance in the last five years. Which is not to say we made a lot of money. It was like still thirty five cents on the dollar. <laughs> but we're going to be in two hundred twenty countries in the same day. Wow. You know, we're going to have access to access to. Thank you. Well, it's a, the potential is huge. I mean, they, they, they're into, uh, into half a billion homes, not a million, half a billion homes, to have access to two and a half billion people. Now, the question is, how can you get some of those two and a half billion people to actually see the film? Yeah. So that's what we're doing. When you're done with the documentary, you're, they say you're only halfway there. Right, right. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, um, but by the way, just by the way, um, Heather's parents are here tonight. Oh, and I remember we, we uh, I remember going to their house, telling them that everything was going to be fine. You know, but <laughs> I just want to say thank you for bringing, uh, letting me take your daughter to China and, and bust a bunch of bad guys. <laughs> Welcome, Heather's parents. Do you have any questions for Heather? <laughs> Who's got questions uh, for this for the crew? Yes, ma'am, right here. 
Mm. But I recall reading about you doing an undercover op with whale meat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was yeah, that's her. That was the opening. That was the hump. Yeah. How did yeah. you come to be doing that? Um, so we originally found out about this restaurant that was selling whale meat in Santa Monica shortly after the the Cove was no longer in theater. So it was probably October or November. October fourth. October fourth <laughs> of two thousand nine, um, and we kind of we. We started investigating this, asking friends. So I, in the process of attempting to keep the Cove in theaters, um, I met this incredible community that I mean, I'm born and raised in Santa Monica, and I'd never known, you know, the Heal the Bay folks, the, the Sea Shepherds, the, all, all of these groups that have been fighting these issues for decades. Um, so I met all of these friends. We heard through the grapevine that this was happening. Um, we knew, we had just found out shortly thereafter that the Cove was nominated for an Oscar and that the whole team was going to be back in town that week leading up to the Oscars. And so we got U.S. Fish and Wildlife and NOAA agents on board so that we could ultimately prosecute, right, because that was the ultimate goal if this turned out to be what we thought it was, which indeed it was, and it wasn't just whale. It was actually an endangered species of whale, um, say whale. And the geneticist, um, actually, this Scott Baker, who was also featured in The Cove, who we worked with, he has a, essentially a database of genetic material from whales from all over the world. So he was able to tell us also that not only was this an endangered species, but exactly where it came from, more than likely the general population. So they ended up getting nailed for the Marine Mammal Protection Act, the Endangered Species Act, and CITES, Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species, for bringing it into the country. So on many levels. Um, I mean, I was born and raised in Santa Monica. When I learned that, I mean, that was, there was no, it was a call to action. There was no other way. I mean, it, it had to end. And I know this community, and I know, I knew the city. I knew that, it, that no one would stand for this if they knew what was happening. So it was just about exposing it. Heather, just to follow up with you, you're a, now a veterinarian. Mm-hmm. And yet you put yourself in these positions uh, in the covert ops where you're facing, you know, really tragic circumstances. You're having to see endangered species in bags and maintain a straight face. Tell us about what that's like and why that's so important to be in the company of these people that are doing terrible things. Um, So this is part of when I mentioned my awakening, it was my promise to myself that I would never again be complacent and that I I wouldn't, just to spare myself some suffering, um, you know, not watch the horrendous videos or not go put myself in a situation where I would see these things because whether you see them or not, they are happening in the world. And they're happening right now and they're happening all over the world to a variety of, of amazing creatures. And... Just because, like I said, you're not seeing it doesn't mean that it's not happening. So the only way to change it is to keep a straight face and to capture that image because that image is what will change people. That's, that's like gold. I mean, if you were to try to intervene, you might save, you might not, that, the life of that individual animal. But what you can do beyond that is potentially change a whole industry, you know, change the way we live, change people's minds, right. you know, right. feelings. I mean, that, that's the ultimate goal. Um, yeah, it's hard. There are, were hard things, you know. Um, I do investigative work still to this day, and it's hard to see animals suffer. But 
you know, you have to do something to change it. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I mean, when we, the, the cove, people said what, what happened with that, you know, there's, there's still, there's, the killing is still going on, but the killing has dropped, I think, 65% now. You know, so, so we're saving, I don't know, there was about 19,000 animals being killed a year the first year I was there, and now it's down to a few thousand. So we're seeing the numbers drop radically, but of course we're not going to stop until it's all done. Sure. We're trying to... Um, to, draw, to buy back the rights to the cove in Japan right now, and I think we're, we're like this close. Um, so when we do that, we're going to give it away for free, nice. and that'll give it another bump. Because once, once people, like I said, once people see it, right, that's it. And that's what we, we sent a copy of the cove to every single person that lived in Taiji. We, we sent, it, sent, you know, and then that that helped drop the the demand quite a bit because that's the first time they heard it about you know about mercury. And that was because uh, there's a lot of mercury in, in dolphin meat, you know, not just a little bit, like up to 5,000 times more mercury that's allowed by Japanese law if it was a fish. So, you know, giving people the information in, in, in ways that they don't, you know, think of it, it's, it's really important. Sure, sure. Great. Other questions from the crowd? Yes, sir, at the very top. Uh, tell us more about the Indonesian village. Where are they now with mantas? Well, where's, how's Lama Kara doing right now? Where are they? Oh, boy. Um, uh, we're working on a campaign with Vulcan. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, Gina works on the campaign. I'm not just... Yeah. <laughs> we're extremely fortunate um, to have a, uh, a cam- an outreach campaign in partnership with Vulcan Productions. Um, that We've been working really in close collaboration with them. Um, and it's really aimed at... Uh, helping protect vulnerable species, sharks, mantas, uh, and reducing fossil fuel consumption. Um, so in the case of La Macera, um, it's, a, it's a long process that's going to take place, um, but uh, Sean is actually working closely with, with Vulcan on that transition, and as you see at the end of the film, um, they have actually, the, the village chief and the fishermen there have all committed to um, stop hunting manta rays in place of a sustainable ecotourism model. Um, we need to show that there actually is demand for people to go and visit the village. Um, and, but they're also working in partnership with some NGOs on the ground there that, that do ecotourism operations in other places nearby, just to kind of make that transition a lot smoother so that they're not learning how to do this from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing to note, too, is that um, after the CITES law was passed, p- placing mantas on Appendix 2, meaning you can't trade uh, in manta parts across different countries, um, Indonesia also passed a law saying it was illegal to hunt them anywhere in the country, which effectively makes Indonesia the largest manta ray sanctuary in the world. Um, so even if we and Sean didn't come into Wamakara and say, you could, you know, giving them an alternative and saying you shouldn't do this, the law doesn't allow them to do it anyway. And on top of that, the fishermen there have already noticed a decline in the number of mantas that they've been even able to catch because they've been hunting them so much. Um, so it's really about presenting an alternative to assist with their own livelihoods because if, if this model didn't exist, they, would, they wouldn't even have enough mantas to sustain the economic um, mm-hmm. 
to, uh, industry there of, of hunting mantis. It's, it's an extractive industry, and we're giving them a sustainable alternative that um, also furthers these goals of protecting these vulnerable species. And it's strictly the gills. Are the, is the rest of the animal eaten, used? Um, there's some other some other products that can be used from the wings, but um, it's it's such a small amount of money that it's right. really the gills that are driving it. Yeah, yeah. First, let me uh, say thanks for coming um, as an aspiring documentarian. You guys are heroes of mine. Um, my question is, when you're starting one of these projects and you're trying to gather support, how do you balance reaching out and gathering that support and that finances and, and making those connections with also keeping a lid on it since it is something covert? Mm, yeah, I mean, well, we don't talk about the covert stuff. Um, I mean, um, I mean you know, we do Kickstarter campaigns. We, we get the money from a lot of different sources. Um, we're going to shake your wallet out after, after you, you get it. We'll look underneath the seats after you leave. <laughs> I don't um, think that we found it that difficult to, to withhold anything about the, the covert operations while still effectively talking about the project as a whole, though. Does that matter yeah. that it's overseas, where a lot of the covert was taking place, as opposed to if it was within the U.S.? Uh, um, well, we, we were doing some things in the U.S. that, that um, were also covert. Some of those projections were not sanctioned. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Hey, I, I have a quick one for you. I, I saw, I read that uh, the original title was Six, and now no, we're the original up... plan, the title was The Singing Planet, then it was called The Heist, I... then it was called Six. Okay, yes. okay, so... <laughs> That's recent... how we, we kept shuffling around so nobody knew what we were doing. We came up with Racing Extinction. Does that, I mean, it, it seems that uh, environmentalists, uh, we're often criticized for preaching to the choir, and it seems that maybe the introduction of the race car driver and uh, having Leilani Munter, um, the carbon-free girl, having her as a part of the film and having her be a race car driver, was that an effort to attract uh, a different demographic? Um, yeah, and, you know, having, you know, quite frankly, having somebody like, like Heather in the film, too. I mean, you know, you know, people, you know, kids look at me and they say, that's an old guy, you know, but they see, you know, Heather and Leilani, they go, oh, it's a hot babe, I think I'll go to the movie tonight. <laughs> Um, that's attention. that's how I would think. But, sure, yeah, sure. I mean, it's a, no, it's a, it's a, you know, the, the idea is, I guess, you know, I've always loved the idea of putting these people together with, spe- you know, each with a special set of skills. It's sure. like a Ocean's Eleven team or something. And that's if you look at the the Cove was uh, was designed like that. In fact, at the Academy Awards, George Clooney told me it's better than uh, Ocean's, Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's better. A couple more questions. Yeah, right down here. Um, I'm. Outstanding film. I, I'm so glad to have seen it this evening. Um, my question is in regard to distribution in China. You know, the education about you know traditional Chinese medicine. You know, and uh, dispelling that belief that's there. That is the demand for the fin. I was just curious. You know how that how the film might be used. Is it in Chinese? I don't know. It will be distributed in, in China. That's very important to us. Um, you see a, an example of, of how communicating the reality of what these products do and where these products come from um, can happen with the PSA that you see with Yao Ming that was done by WildAid and, in collaboration with Sean's footage. Um, we plan to replicate that with Mantas. Um, there's, uh, they're very receptive to these messages coming from figures like 
celebrities, and so we want to you know, find somebody who can deliver that message. Um, but there's a lot of research that has shown that um, the, the actual product, the dried mantagill, that most people don't understand that it even comes from a manta at all, or that a manta ray is an endangered species. So the people that are consuming them just aren't, don't even have the complete set of information to make an informed choice about the product. Um, but we know we can change that um, through these partnerships and through these PSAs. So that, that will be in our plans in the next year. Oh, and by the way, the, the guy that's paying for the Empire State Building projections, if it happens, uh, it's a, the richest guy in Asia. He lives, he's a, a Chinese guy in Hong Kong. So, I mean, we have, you know, his, his girlfriend saw the movie and they, they stopped or reducing their, you know, their consumption of shark fin soup. You know, it used to be, it was every banquet would have it. Now, it's actually illegal now. Illegal. To have it at banquet, like Jap- uh, Chinese banquets, yeah. uh, government-sponsored banquets, yeah. There huh. has been some, some great progress on the shark fin front, actually. Um, the, the demand for it in the past three years has actually reduced by about 50%. Wow. Yeah. Um, and partly because the, the government there has banned it at any official functions, which was a large part of, of the consumption of it. And then that also just set uh, an example for all business functions to follow um, and other events like that. Right. Um, so there has been good progress. And the, and the Chinese government is trying to take a stance on illegal wildlife products. I mean, they're not perfect, but um, they, are trying, they are saying that that's a priority of theirs. So that means that all of the other groups that are working on this issue on the ground can point to that and, right. and try to hold them accountable to that statement. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will add, too, that on the, on the shark fin front, it's not just a, a Chinese problem. There actually are right. states in the U.S. where the trade, trade in shark fins is still allowed. Huh. Uh, Texas, Rhode Island, Vermont, New Jersey. Um, so those four states were actually working to get legislation on the floor um, to try to close those loopholes and get laws in the books to finally ban it in the United States. Huh. We have one that's up right now in New Jersey, and then we hope um, in April there'll be one in Texas. So at the end of the film, you saw there's a number that you can text. It's, it's, you text the word race to 55755. If you text that number, we'll actually text you back a link and you can sign on to that pledge and help, uh, help ban shark fins in the U.S. So it's race to 55755. And you can also just go on our website, racingextinction.com. Yeah, and we won't bombard you with messages either. Um, you know, we just, you know, like once, once a week or something, we'll send you something. Not but even. Not, not even. <laughs> not even. But, but yeah. We'll start out slow. Then we'll <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll Gentle. ramp up to once a week. Gentle. No, Gentle. but really, I mean, we, 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 this whole campaign works um, because, you, because people like you are part of it. I mean, it's really that movement that we're building towards. Right. Um, and so, you know, we want to give you guys tools to really create, a, create change on this. I and mean, we're all about moving the needle on these issues. So, we, really, we, we invite you guys to join us on this. Yeah, I mean, with a, hopefully you get the idea that, you know, this isn't a future problem. It's up to us in the room to solve this. I mean, it's a, one reason I, I, I love coming to California is because you guys are on the epicenter, the forefront, the vanguard of everything that's positive about being a human on this planet. Yeah. No, seriously. <laughs> right. the, the, everything starts here. You know, it's, and, it, and it, you know, it works its way out to the rest of the world. But, you know, it's, it's important that this, this group gets affected. Yeah. It's true. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, I think my favorite part of your video is how it empowers the individual. So I think the collective action problem and feeling that us who are so small in such a big world can actually do something. 
Like I love the uh, of the beginning of the film with the uh, hump restaurant and the man who sat out front and really was able to shut it down, as well as with the right at the end talking about the things that we as individuals can do, consuming less meat and finding alternative modes of transportation. And I thought it was really interesting that you brought up in the film the irony of creating this project. Like you had to have such a consumptive lifestyle by traveling all over the world and using so much electricity. And I'm wondering like how you, I guess, saddle that irony and how you introduce sustainability in your own life. Oh, well, boy, I'm glad you asked that. I mean, um, yesterday we met with... Uh, uh, at BIF, the Boulder International Film Festival, there was a, a guy in the audience that um, does sustainability for 140 Fortune 500 companies. And uh, he does it like for Microsoft and, you know, big, huge companies. And he offered to do it for free for us. So we sat down with him yesterday, and he's doing a carbon assessment of what we use for the film, and he'll donate the carbon offsets to do that. But after we, we did the Cove, um, when I talk about the two years of, of you know, we did a carbon assessment of two years of production. I was talking about the cove, and I, that's when I was horrified. We put 646 tons of, of CO2 into the environment. So I changed the way that we got our energy at OPS. Um, uh, you know, OPS, the Oceanic Preservation Society. I installed 120 solar panels on the roof. We generate 140% of our energy, uh, which means I get checks from the electric company in December, which is the darkest month of the year. Uh, I've been driving. I've had four electric cars, um, and... You know, the, the, the one I drive now, it's a 12-year-old Toyota RAV. The, the license plate says VUS. It stands for Vehicle Using Sun. It's the opposite of SUV. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I flew here today, you know, so that, that probably used more carbon than, uh, you know, a, a year of driving a normal car. You know, that's just the reality of it. Um, you know, you have to... I, I figure that when flying around like this, you have to... You know, so it's a, it's a bad analogy for a, a vegan to say, but, you know, break a few, few eggs to make an omelet. Um, uh, you know, but the, the, the truth is, though, <laughs> how's that go? Uh, Sam Simon told me this. He said, uh, uh, a vegan driving a Hummer uses less energy than a meat eater on a bicycle. <laughs> so, I mean, if you really want to do, you know, the, the thing is, you could, you could, you know, Lilani told me the other day, like, you know, I could... You know, even though I drive a, a car, you know, that's it's a Tesla. Um, you know, the, the best thing that anybody can do is is get off of meat because that's more consumptive, you know, than than driving a car. So um, that, that I became a, a vegan about you know five or six years ago, and um, you know I haven't looked back, and I'm still pretty healthy. You know, it's like there's that's. The best thing I can do is tell you what I just told you, and then you go out and adopt a plant-based diet, or you know, start walking, or taking the bus, or you know, getting electric cars. I mean, um, I figure I can use my voice to talk to, to millions of people, but you can too. You know, you know, I met this guy Nathan Merrillvold about fifteen, maybe it was twenty years ago. Now he was a, he was a guy that Bill Gates put out in a corner office to look out into the future five to ten years from from then. And he, he drew this curve back, this was back in 1993, and this is back, you know, most of you were, were kids back then, this will sound weird, but he said, you know, phone calls are one day, international phone calls will one day be free, and a kid with a laptop will have as much power as a New York Times writer. And I thought, that is just insane, that's just crazy, and you look at it right now, 
That's, that's what's, what's come to pass. I mean, Skype and anybody, you know, you do a good blog. You know, viral used to be like you had a million. Now it's a hundred million. I mean, people can, you know, everybody in this room has a voice. They can make things, you know, you have a, a, a wonderful, true message and you start sharing it. What happens? Other people start sharing it and it becomes viral. And that's the same thing a newspaper does. It's just that they have a, a system in place. But now we've, we've, we've built our own system. You know, activists and, you know, everybody that's as, as a group of any kind. Um, and you partner with other groups. I mean, we partner with a lot of other organizations to amplify this message. And that's just, that's how things get done now. But we, you do it without having to spend, you know, without having to have a printing press, without having to have, you know, tens of millions of dollars for advertising. You know, the, the, the Cove made less than a million dollars at the box office. That's a good night of popcorn for, a, for a, you know, one of these tentpole movies. Uh, but the movie is effective, you know. Uh, you know, a Hollywood producer, their whole idea of like, you know, they look at you guys as butts and seats. You're ten dollars in a box of popcorn. That's what they call you. And I don't look at that. I don't look at you like that. You're like, you know, minds and seats. You know, our bar to success is not to get your money and get you to buy a box of popcorn for the theater owner. Our, our bar is to have you leave this theater and start changing the world because we need to do it. I can't remember how I wandered off to that, but uh, there, there, we, there we are. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. Can I, I'd like to give uh, the four of you a chance to, if there's anything that you'd like to say to the audience before we wrap up. Uh, well, I have to plug the campaign again. Sorry. Um, <laughs> really, I mean, we, we really do want you to, to, to join us in really radiating this message out because, as, as Louis said, I mean, the power that you guys have as individuals is immense. And we hope that you really are affected by, you know, any one thing in this film that you leave, take and leave with you. And, you know, we want to really create this groundswell. We want you to be part of this with us. So, you know, sign up on the website, racingextinction.com, or we'll make it really easy for you and just text that number, Race to 55755. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I mean, I think I've said everything I want to say, but, you know, just if you, if you like the movie, you know, get out there and start, you know, just, just go home and write a little, little post, say you saw this movie that sucked or, you know, it's really good or whatever, but just, uh, you know, tell people you saw it and it'll start, you know, we'll, we'll be in theaters, I think, hopefully in September. We have a six-week run. We're, we're, we'll be in 10 markets. We'll be, I don't know if we'll be in Santa Barbara, we'll definitely be in L.A., but... Um, and then we'll probably be out. Right, we're trying to. T- I wanted to target the movie to be in uh, on television right before COP 21, which is the uh, the road to Paris to you know the, the Kyoto Protocols expire and the new ones have to be implemented. And uh, the world leaders are meeting in, in, in Paris the end of de- uh, November, beginning of December. So it's, it, we're trying to be out then. So that's the that's the huge push is to get this film out there and get it seen as by as many people as possible. And that's Discovery Channel. That's Discovery Channel. Mm-hmm. November. Um, Heather? For anyone who has not seen The Cove, <laughs> please don't be afraid to open your eyes. Please. That's all. <laughs> In general, but for The Cove also. Uh, yeah, uh, well, I'm a UCSB alumni, so it's a real honor to be able to be here with the film. And, uh, so, so is Heather. Uh, and uh, I just want to say, you know, there's a long tradition of um, activism here at this school in particular. 
And you know, I'm, I'm like looking at you, going, "Don't let me down. <laughs> like we gotta, we gotta do this, and it's time for all of us to step up and, and to inspire others as well." So, so I'm, I'm asking you, I'm tasking you with taking it to the next level. Tom quit his job so he could be with, so he could be running the car, you know, for the next several weeks, while we're the next several months while we're doing these campaigns. So, I mean, he's uh, he had a really good job. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.